change is quite often very difficult for us because change um, requires adjusting what we've been doing to start doing something else. It requires us stopping certain things and starting doing other things. And oftentimes change, we talked about our comfort zones last week, but often change requires getting out of our comfort zone. Like here is where I know what's going on. I've been doing this for a while and I'm comfortable with this. And change requires that we leave that comfort zone. And so because of this, we're usually very resistant to change. And sometimes we're presented with a weighty choice, change or die. Maybe you'd go to the doctor and he'd be like, if you don't, change the way you're eating, if you don't change the way you're living, you're going to die. You have heart problems, and if you keep going this way, it could be weeks, could be months, could be years, but you are going to die. You need to change or you're going to die. But even if we hear that warning, it can still be very difficult for us to change because it's what we've always been doing. We're comfortable with it. It's what we're used to. And sometimes you'll see a person unwilling to make a difficult change like that, like I need to change my diet and lifestyle so, my, um, so I don't die of a heart attack or something like that. Um, but sometimes... There's something that motivates them, and you'll see some people, like, one day the heart attack came, and I had to get rushed to the hospital, um, and surgery was done on me right then, and I could have died. And that realization, coming face-to-face -face with their condition, you know, it's one thing for a doctor to say, like, hey, if you, things are bad in there, and if you don't change something, you're going to die. And it's another to be at death's doorstep and say, okay, okay, now I'm finally going to change. When you come face-to-face -face with the reality of our condition and realize it and wake up to that reality and it's after seeing our condition clearly it's only then usually that uh, the reality of the the cost of staying as we are is greater than the cost um, of changing what we're doing and this this evening as we're continuing our series called beginning the journey home in the book of genesis we're still continuing with the life of jacob and we'll be for a couple more chapters and i i like to think that some of the songs we sing like that never once song the last week we learned that uh, jacob God was going to be with him. Um, and I like to think that some of these songs that he could have sang himself, like as he's going through life and as he gets through things, he could sing those songs. But we saw Jacob is a selfish person, and he wants what other people have. And he uses lies and trickery, and, and he cheats his very own family to get the things he wants. He's, he's hurt his dad. He's hurt his brother. And because his brother feels cheated by him, now he says, well, I want to kill my brother Jacob once my dad dies. And so now he's been sent off to live with his uncle for a while until Esau, his brother's anger, cools down. And a few days of this journey, we saw how God appeared to him and said, Jacob, I want to bless you to be a blessing. And I'm going to be with you as you're leaving your home country and your family. And I'm going to bring you back here. That was God's promise to him. And Jacob responded by making a deal. He says, if you do what you've said, if you will be with me, if you'll keep me, if you'll provide for me, if you'll bring me back home, then you will be my God. And even when God speaks to him, God appears to him, speaks to him, and makes these grand promises, even then Jacob is resistant to change. He doesn't just say, oh, yeah, I'm just going to give my whole life to you now. But he's still resistant to change. And rather than surrendering and submitting to God, he still wants to hold on to control. I'm going to make this deal. If you'll give me that, yes, I'll give you something too. And he wants to see how things are going to play out before he's willing to trust God. But as we talked about last week, God is now working in his life. God is present with him. And so the big question we're going to answer this evening is, how does God prepare selfish people for change? How does God prepare selfish people for change? That's what Genesis 29. We only got to read part of 29, but we're also going to be heading into chapter 30 as well. So how does God prepare selfish people for change? So to recap a bit, after a month of travel, uh, Jacob arrives in Haran. 
And this scene when he arrives in Haran should remind us of another scene back in Genesis 24 because back there, Abraham sent his servant to go back to his relatives, back to Haran where he came from, um, to go find a bride for his son Isaac. And that servant was like, uh, this sounds impossible. I'm supposed to go back to this place you left 100 years ago, find your relatives, and somehow convince one of these young ladies to come back with me a month-long journey, leave her family, leave her home country, and come marry your son, who I'm supposed to convince is loaded uh, because God had blessed them. And they're like, how am I going to do this? And so he's feeling the weight of this task. So he's praying like crazy for God to help him on this assignment. And God does. And then Jake, when he arrives, Jacob's mom, Rebecca, is the first person he met and the woman who comes back to marry Isaac, Jacob's dad. And the servant worshiped God for his help in completing this assignment and he couldn't, that he knew he couldn't complete on his own. And now contrast that with Jacob's arrival 100 years later. You know, Abraham left. 100 years later, he sent his servant. 100 years after that servant was there, now Jacob is there. And Jacob, he's hoping he's going to find his uncle Laban. That's who the servant meant to him too. And he wants to stay with them. Stops at a well. There's three shepherds there. They've got their sheep huddled up. And he asks them in verse 4, My brothers, where do you come from? And they answer, well, we're from Haran. Oh, what a coincidence. So Jacob asks a follow-up question. Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? We know him, they say. So here we, this seems like this repeat of when the servant was there. Like, what are the chances that he would meet people that you know, are related to him right away or who know his relatives right away? And he asks, is it well with him? He asks, and they answer him, it is well. Oh, and see, Rachel's daughter is coming with the sheep. So not only did he happen to meet people as Noah's uncle, but now his cousin is coming over to arrive with the sheep at the very well he stopped at. And she's some distance off, so while Jacob's waiting for her to get there with the sheep, he decides he's going to ask these guys some questions about how they're doing their job as shepherds. And if you remember, Jacob, he liked to be in the tent. Um, he was his mom's favorite. He liked to be in the tent. Um, but... It would be a misportrayal to say, like, well, he's just in the tent, you know, playing video games in his mom's basement. It doesn't really work hard. No, Jacob, um, we see in this scene, um, and later when he's really successful with Laban's flocks, that he knows what he's doing when it comes to, to sheep and goats and, and taking care of them. And back in Genesis 4, um, we saw that tent dwelling, like Jacob does, is connected to raising livestock because you got your tents I don't exactly know how it all works, but those are connected in some ways where you've got your tents and maybe you're setting up shop in some place where there's grass and you've got your sheep and your goats around. So Jacob knows what he's doing when it comes to sheep. And so he says to these shepherds, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. So in other words, he's saying, Why are you gathering the sheep in for the night? Why do you got all your sheep huddled up here like you're done for the day? It's way too early. Stop sitting around, water them, and get back out and graze. Why are you, you know, sitting around here wasting time? And their response is, well, we can't until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And wells in that time um, needed to be covered, often with a large stone, so people and animals didn't fall into it. Uh, but then also the large stone was like, usually take a couple, maybe two or three or several people to move it. So this is kind of like an accountability system. Like you can't arrive and just suck the well dry. I mean, wells sometimes would be like more of a cistern, a big old container in the ground that collects water. And so it could run out. It's not like there's a spring filling it. So it's like you can't just arrive, move it off yourself, drink it all up and move on with your sheep. No, you, you had to wait for other shepherds to be there. And so then you're all accountable. Like, hey, we're splitting this. We share this well. And so they're waiting there um, to, for other people to come in um, to help move this stone off so they can water their sheep and then it'd be first come, first served. 
And while they're talking, Jay, Rachel arrives. Instead of waiting, you know, she's at the back of the line now, and instead of waiting for her turn, instead of waiting for the other people to get there, Jacob just moves the stone himself and waters all of her sheep. And I don't know why, why they didn't stop, and they must be like, whoa, uh, usually it takes a couple of us to move that. He just moves it himself. I guess we won't mess with this guy. Um, but then... Finally, after watering them all, he tells her, you know, with excitement and joy, I'm your relative. And she runs and tells her father. Laban runs out, meets him, embraces him, kisses him. And the, I mean, he hasn't seen these relatives from this other part of the country or the, the region for a hundred years. And so this is a great reunion. And as we just compare this arrival scene with the arrival of Abraham's servant a hundred years ago, we get insight into Jacob's spiritual maturity. What's his spiritual life like? But you see him, there, there's no prayer for God's help. There's no worship of God when he finds his family. There's no mention of God to his family. Like, hey, God's been with my dad. He actually appeared to me on the way here, and now, you know, I'm coming here. And, like, he kind of, he doesn't mention any of that. We don't get the, uh, any insight into that. And so the servant, when he came, he knew his need for God to be successful. And then he praised God um, when he was. And Jacob doesn't. And when we start recognizing our dependence on God, um, that's when we really start asking for his help, and that's really when we start thanking him. If we don't realize, hey, I'm dependent on God, like, well, why would we ever ask him for help? Why would we ever, ever thank him? And so if we find ourselves not praying much or thanking God much, it's probably because we don't think we need him very much. So then after a month of living and working with his uncle, Laban's like, well, I don't want you to work, you know, you're my nephew, but I don't want, but I don't want you to work for me for free. Name your wages. And then we learn that Laban had two daughters, Rachel and Leah, and where Leah, it says, has like weak eyes or soft eyes, and it's not totally clear what that means, but uh, the, it's clear that uh, when they're standing next to each other, um, Rachel's the one who stands out. We're told that she's beautiful in form and in appearance. And Jacob, he's arrived with only a staff in his hand. That's what he says later. And he has no means to pay the bride price, um, which was traditional in that time, the uh, groom's family would pay the bride's family a bride price. It was a, like this is, uh, it was kind of like a security system in some ways. But he says he actually offers a more generous thing. He's like, I'll work for you for seven years, and that would have been more than the typical bride price. And so Laban agrees. Jacob works seven years, but it only seemed like a few days because of his love for her. And it's, oh, this is just a fairy tale, you know, love story in the making. And he's like, I just worked seven years, and it was like nothing. But after the seven years. Jacob asks for his bride. You know, this love story quickly deteriorates. Laban gathers everyone together for the traditional feast, um, and they're, they're doing all that. But in, when it comes time, instead of bringing Rachel to Jacob's tent, he brings Leah. You might be like, well, how did he mistake him? Well, there's not, you know, lighting like this at, that day. And she's veiled, so it's dark. She has a veil over her face. Um, and it could be, it'd be hard to tell the, the difference between them. And in the morning, he realizes that Laban has tricked him. And he wakes up shocked and confronts Laban, who says, well, you know, around here, we don't give the younger before the older. And so that would be, you know, kind of improper. You'd think that tricking him like that would be a little improper. But so he's like, celebrate the wedding week with Leah, and then I'll give you Rachel, and then you can work another seven years for her. And so it's like, oh, wow, what a deal. Thanks, Laban. Uh, but the fairy tale story... Uh, that quickly started as looking more, you know, like we talked about, Jacob's family looks like a daytime soap opera. And now it's looking like that again, you know, like some guy's like giving him the wrong wife and he's working all these years and it's just like, you know, this time uh, back home, it was Jacob, the one that was making it feel like this, but now it's him who's getting lies um, and deceived and trickery. 
And the big question this passage answers is, how does God prepare selfish people for change? And I want you to think of like a mirror um, when you hear this. So first answer is by showing them how hurtful their selfishness is. Like looking in a mirror, it's by showing them how hurtful their selfishness is. How does God prepare selfish people for change? One way is by showing them how hurtful their selfishness is. He holds up a mirror and lets them see, wow, this hurts when people do this to me. Um, Wow, I can't imagine how much I must have hurt other people by doing this to them. We're often resistant to change, especially when change, change requires transferring our trust from ourselves to God and surrender of our control to Him. Because we prefer to be in control. We prefer it be our agenda. Things go my way. I'm going to handle this thing. I'm calling the shots. And that's what Jacob is used to. And we saw when he arrives, he's not looking and saying like, yeah, God, you're in control. He's making a deal with God. When he arrives, he's not like looking for God's help. He's just, I'm just going to do this my way. And he, Jacob, took advantage of his brother's eagerness to eat in order to buy his birthright from him. And then he took advantage of his dad's inability to see in order to trick him and steal his brother's blessing. But now Jacob is seeing a reflection of himself in Laban. Laban takes advantage of Jacob's eagerness to serve for Rachel, just like Jacob took advantage of Esau's eagerness to eat stew. And now Laban is also takes advantage of Jacob's inability to see, just like Jacob took advantage of his father's inability to see his blindness. He pretended to be Esau to steal a blessing. And so Jacob sees this reflection of himself in Laban, and it hurts. Laban is deceitful and tricky, and it doesn't feel good to be on the receiving end of that. And in Laban, Jacob sees the reality of his condition. And God in this process, is in a, he's, God is in a process of waking Jacob up to his need for God. And verse 30 sets us up for the next part of the story. It tells us Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. And Jacob is playing favorites, just like his mom and dad did. His mom favored, favored Jacob. His dad favored his brother Esau. And it's understandable why Jacob favors Rachel. I mean, that was the girl he loved. That was the girl he worked seven years for in the past in a day. It makes sense. Um, but we're going to see it only creates ugliness in his life. And we're not going to cover these verses, you know, verse by verse, um, Genesis 29, or, yeah, 29, 31 to 30, 24. What happens here is Jacob has children um, with his two wives and then and their servants as well. And he names these servants and they all have names for him. We're not going to uh, hit every name, but just talk about the themes of them. So in verse 31, we're told the Lord saw Leah was unloved. So he granted her four children, but her naming of them reveals a lot. Every name is focused on her wanting to get the love and affection of Jacob. And she wants something that her sister has. She, she wants her husband's love. And the, finally, with the last son's name, it's like she goes kind of through this maturing and growing process. The last son's name is Judah. Instead of looking for her husband's attention and praise, she, Judah means um, pra- praise the Lord. Um, and so he's, she's praising um, God now and saying, like, I, he gave me these kids. And so you're seeing her faith and her maturity um, rise to the surface here. And so while, but while the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, so he granted her children, Chapter 30, verse 1 says, Rachel saw that she's not having kids, and so she's jealous of her sister. She tells Jacob, she says, give me children or I shall die. That, I don't know what I would do if Katie would say that to me. It's kind of an you know, <laughs> intense request. But even if Jacob isn't very spiritually minded, at least he knows where children come from. And verse 2 says, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God? 
who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So what's Rachel's solution? She's like, okay, I'll give you my maidservant, Bilhah, which was a common practice in those days. If I can't have children myself, I'll have children through my maidservant, kind of like Abraham did with Hagar. Um, Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. And so uh, Bilhah becomes a concubine, and they have two kids. Um, and Rachel's names of them focus on her defeating and rising above her sister. She's jealous of her, and she's like, I need to give better than her. I need to have more kids than her. And so um, it's like she already has her husband's love, but she's like, I need to have the same amount of kids. And so because Leah was no longer getting pregnant, she's like, oh, well, I guess I'll follow suit. I'll give Zilpah, my maidservant, to Jacob. Um, and these two kids, she names them kind of like focusing on how fortunate and how happy she is and blessed um, to be having these kids. God isn't named in them, but it seems like she, instead of looking at her husband, she's looking at, look at you know, how blessed I am to have these kids uh, that God is giving me. She's thankful for them. And then we're told a story that should make us a little sick uh, because one of Leah's sons, Reuben, finds some mandrakes out in the field. And mandrakes, I don't know if it's still believed today, but at least back then, mandrakes were believed to sort of be like a aphrodisiac or like they could help you with fertility to have kids and Rachel's in this place where she's like well I'm infertile I'm not able to get pregnant and so she sees that Reuben has these mandrakes she's like I'm going to try to get these she requests these mandrakes from Leah please give me your son's mandrakes and so let's pick up their conversation in chapter 30 verse 15 to hear Leah's response Leah says uh, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband would you take away my son's mandrakes also Rachel said, uh, then he may lie with you tonight. Wait, did I skip a verse here? Rachel said, no, I didn't. Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night. And so we should be like, what in the world? They're like treating sex with their husband as this commodity and they're like selling and trading it and, and bartering over it. And they're so wrapped up in their rivalry that they're treating Jacob like he's this object instead of a person. And so it's like, man, this is just, what is this? They're not even seeing him. They're just seeing each other at this point, it seems. And so Leah has a fifth son from this encounter and then she has another son. And now she says, well, I feel confident my, my husband's going to honor me now. I've had six sons for him. And then she also has a daughter who's going to um, be a character in a story later. And then finally, in verse 22, we're, we're told, well, God remembered Rachel, listened to her, and opened her womb. And at this point, we can hear her pain. It's hard to know, like, did, okay, did she come to a place where she's stopped focusing on beating her sister, and now she's finally like, man, this is just sad for me. Like, I'm really sad about this. I'm not focused on beating her anymore. It's hard to know. But she says, um, God has taken away my reproach. And her in that day, like the honor and goal of a wife was, I need to give my husband kids, especially sons. And so she's like, I can't give any. And so I just feel the shame and the sadness. And she names Job, Joseph, him, him Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And now, if you're familiar with Genesis, Joseph is the main character for the last 13 chapters of Genesis. Um, and God will grant her prayer later and give her another son, Benjamin, but she's going to die in childbirth, unfortunately. These verses we've covered here span a 14-year time period. Jacob's first month with his uncle, his first seven years serving for Rachel, which ended up being Leah, and then his second seven years um, serving for Rachel slash Leah. And during that time, he has 11 sons and one daughter. And these 14 years, they're filled with turmoil. Jacob's deceived and tricked by his uncle, and Jacob is caught between the, 
the jealousy and rivalry of his two wives. And, and the names of his sons reflect the messy conflict in his household. And the names of Jacob's sons, these become the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what the tribes are named after. And it's like, wow, what a great origin story for the nation of Israel. All these guys with all their names um, reflect how their moms were fighting and bickering and trying to win, you know, beat each other. And one of the features of the Bible that speaks to its truthfulness and credibility is that it doesn't filter out embarrassing details like this. Like if you're the nation of Israel and you're making, you know, your story up like, hey, we're chosen by God, um, so we're, you know, superior to all of you. Like if you're making up your origin story, you wouldn't want to be like, oh, by the way, here's the 12 guys that become the heads of our tribes, and this is who we're named after. Oh, and by the way, Jacob, his name gets changed to Israel. Our whole nation's named after him. Like, is this, you know, who you want your origin story to be about? Um, but it speaks to, it speaks to truthfulness and shows this is just a testimony of God's grace about how he chooses them and how he also chooses us as well. The big question this passage answers is, how does God prepare selfish people for change? The second answer is, by showing them how ugly their selfishness is. So our first answer was by showing them how hurtful their selfishness is. Our second answer is by showing them how ugly their selfishness is. And you look at this family situation, you're like, I don't care who's prettier of these two daughters. This whole situation looks pretty ugly by the end of it. Rachel wants what Leah has, and Leah wants what Rachel has. And the names of their kids are inspired by this rivalry. And they disregard their husband's desires and his feelings. And they just kind of um, barter for sex with them. And their actions show how ugly their selfishness is. And their, their rivalry is like looking in a mirror for Jacob. Because if you remember, Jacob wanted what his brother had. And he would do anything to get it, disregarding the desires and feelings of Esau, disregarding the desires and feelings of his dad. And that led to an ugly and dangerous family situation that got him sent to his uncles. And now as his two wives... Look, as he's looking at them, he sees that same ugliness that he was a part of making in his family back home. And when we, God gives us commands. He does warn us about the consequences of our selfishness. But oftentimes in the Bible, you'll see God motivating or trying to get people to change by letting them experience what their poor choices are producing and you know, experience the consequences, experience like this is where this road is leading instead of constantly just God does rescue us but instead of constantly rescuing us from the consequences of our poor choices, he lets us see them so we finally would say, okay God, I'm, I'm done, I'm ready to surrender to you, I'm ready to trust you, I'm ready to do it your way and Jacob's a guy who we see he's still holding on to control, still wanting to do it his own way and we're often very very unwilling to change until we come face to face with the reality of our condition in the mirror. And so God is working in Jacob's life. In this story, Jacob looks in the mirror and he sees a reflection of himself as he experiences how hurtful and how ugly his selfishness is. When we leave today, the truth we need to remember is God is at work to free you from selfishness. God is at work to free you from selfishness. Another way to talk about sin is to talk about selfishness. Because when we sin, we're living for ourselves. We're living selfishly with no regard for God or no regard for others. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Jesus came to die so that we could die with him and no longer live for ourselves. He's like, what's the condition that we need to be saved from? It's living for ourselves. And it's, 
it's ugly and it's hurtful to us. It's hurtful to God um, and it's hurtful um, to other people. And so God is at work to free us from our selfishness. He's, and he gives us this freedom on two levels because without God, we live for ourselves. At the, our heart, the core of our being, is bent on satisfying ourselves and it, it, it's corrupted. And when we trust in Jesus, God does this heart surgery on us to free us so we can live for him and stop living for ourselves. And he's free us, us from the power of our sin by giving us the power of his Holy Spirit to live in us. And we talked about how he makes us into a house and he dwells in us and he starts remodeling that house so it starts to look different so by the end you don't even recognize it. And so at the one level, God has already freed us from the power of sin. We're no longer shackled to it. We're no longer slaves to it. And so now we can choose to live for God and love others. But even though we're free from sin's power, that doesn't mean that we stop doing it because even though we're set free from sin shackles that means now we can choose to sin but it doesn't mean or we can choose not to sin but it doesn't mean that we never sin because it's like well you can still go back to being a slave even after you've been freed from slavery you can be like you know i'd like to keep working here i'd like to keep working in the hull of this ship you know rowing this boat i mean that was kind of a form of slavery back in the day um or i want to keep you know, working in these conditions and we don't know that life could be better, and so we stay there. And so we, we can lapse, relapse back into living for ourselves rather than living for God. And the, God says, the work I've already done to you to free you from sin's power is a work that I'm continually working on completing. And I'm going to complete it, and I'm going to keep working in you. And so at one level, you are already free, and God is con- still working in you to get you to live free. It's like you are free, and now he wants you to live in light of that reality. And we see in Jacob's life that selfishness is hurtful and ugly. And in reality, selfishness is really self-destructive. We might think, like, I need to live for myself. That's how I'm going to get my needs met. That's how I'm going to be taken care of. But it's really self-destructive. It doesn't get us what we want, but only makes things worse. And so the question is, we may ask, like, well, okay, if I've been set free, why would I keep going back to sin? Why do I keep acting selfishly? We might struggle with that and we wonder like well why isn't God changing me why isn't he doing um, a greater work in me than um, than he than he says he is doing in me why do I keep sinning why do I keep going back to those things that are hurtful and ugly why am I not growing and why am I not loving other people more why do we struggle to change and one of Jesus' disciples named Peter said well God has given us everything to live a changed life to grow in godliness he writes this letter to followers in that day who might have been like, well, you were struggling. He's like, God's given you everything for a life of godliness, given you the ability to love him, to love other people, to honor him. And then he says, well, why aren't some of you, so why aren't some of you seeing this happen in your life? Why aren't you growing in love? And why aren't you growing out of selfishness? He says, well, it's because you've forgotten that you've been forgiven. Which is kind of interesting, is it? Like, why? Like, that's the starting point. It's like, if you are like, why aren't I growing? Peter says it's because you've forgotten that you've been forgiven. It's because you've forgotten that you've been saved. That's God's wiped your record clean. That he's paid for your debt. And he says it's because you've forgotten the gospel, the good news of who God is, what he's done in Jesus for you. And why, why would remembering we're forgiven and believing we're forgiven produce such a change? It's like, well, that seems so, seems so simple. If it's that easy, um, why, what's the big deal? Why are you even talking about it? But it's when we see ourselves as forgiven, like you're going to relate to someone very differently you know, if, if you think that they have something against you or if you have something against them. Um, you're going to re- 
be open to that person. You're going to be wanting to be with them. You're going to be wanting to ask them for help. If you have somebody who you think is mad at you, what do you do with them? You avoid them, right? You don't talk to them. Or you talk bad about them to other people. And so if you think God's mad at you, and God's against you, and he hasn't forgiven you, you're not going to go to him. You're not going to go to him as the source for growth and for change and transformation. So this week I was thinking, like, what do we, what do we need? And so often um, we don't see ourselves as safe uh, with God. And I know we haven't used this yet, but it's a little like an acronym. I was like, what would be like something we could remember that might be powerful? And who knows, maybe we'll all forget about this in a week, but maybe it'll be helpful. I hope it is. So we need to feel, we need to know we're safe with God. And each of these letters, so we need to know we're secure, accepted, forgiven, and embraced. Because so often, we don't, we might not feel safe with God. We might think he's against us. We may not go to him and think like, I just, you know, I don't feel safe in his presence or um, talking to him or whatever. Or like, uh, and so we need to know we're safe. We're secure in Christ. Jesus is the one who's paid it all. There's nothing left to pay um, for our status with God. And we're accepted. And it's not that we're accepted where God is saying, you know, you are, uh, I just accept you the way you are. Um, that's not the case. Because if that was the case, Jesus didn't have to die. If God could accept us just the way we are, there's no point in Jesus dying. But God accepts us based on who he is and what he's not done, not based on who we are and what we do. Um, now, it's true that our status has changed, that now who we are, his beloved children, he accepts us as his beloved children. But if he could just accept us the way we are, then Jesus didn't have to die. But he does accept us. There's nothing to be done. And we're forgiven of everything. When we trust in Jesus, God doesn't keep a record of wrongs for us. Our sins have been separated as far as the east is from the West, and he treats us as if they never happened. I often think about that if Katie and I are in a conflict uh, and I say I forgive you, I have to, that means I need to treat her as if it didn't happen. There's no more debt, it's been paid, and that's really hard for me. But God is perfect. He treats us as if it never happened because the debt's been paid, it's been paid for. Lastly, we're embraced in love. God doesn't hold us at arm's length. He loves us and cherishes us and nourishes us and he warmly embraces us. And if we could believe we're safe with God, um, then we would live a life pleasing with him. You know, believing that we're forgiven, our, been cleansed of our sins, and now we are safe with him. And we want to go to him and be drawn to him. And we turn from our sin and selfishness to live for him. And we've seen in this passage um, that selfishness is hurtful and ugly. And the way God gets us to see that is he holds up a mirror to us. So like, look, this is... This is what it looks like. And in this case, it happens with Jacob experiencing it. Um, but one of the most important, one of the greatest responsibilities that God gives to us as fellow believers in Christ for, to do to each other is to bring our, each other, our sin to each other, or call out sin in other people, to confront sin and correct it and say like, hey, you did this thing and it hurt. Um, and you know, here's how it hurt me. Here's how I felt after that. And that's like a mirror saying like, wow, like you wouldn't even realize the things you're doing, the things you're saying, the way you're acting. And a person coming and saying like, Here, here's what you did. And here's how it made me feel. Like suddenly you're confronted with, wow, my selfishness is hurtful. 
And it's ugly. It doesn't look good when I see it and somebody else is used as a mirror and calling out sin. God is with Jacob. And so you think like this situation he's going through where it's like, where is God in this? And we need to remember, and we're saying these things like, well, how does God uh, uh, bring change in him? And it's like, it seems like it's kind of painful what Jacob goes through. And it's like, where is God? Well, God, remember, he said, I'm going to be with you. I'm with you in all this. I'm going to keep you wherever you go. And so God's at work here. That's why we can say with confidence that God's not absent. He's doing something with Jacob, even if Jacob's not recognizing it. But then God takes his spirit, and he puts that spirit in us, and now he sends us as his representatives to one another to um, try and help each other grow and to change. And calling out sin in each other's lives, it's one of our greatest responsibilities. And yet it's the responsibility we're most likely to neglect and we're least likely to do well. And that's just a horrible combination. I mean, I, I, get, I think about it in my life. It's like, yeah, this is like one of the hardest things um, to do is to confront sin in somebody else with love and grace and patience um, and gentleness. It's our greatest responsibility, yet it's the one we're most likely to neglect and least likely to do. Read Hebrews 3 and you'll see how, how important this responsibility is. And the reason it's, we neglect it or we do it well is because we don't believe we're safe. You can't come to somebody else and talk to them about their sin unless you believe you are these things too. You, you know, if you, Peter might say like, well, why are, we, why are you bad at loving other people when they sin? Well, it's because you've forgotten your forgiveness. Because you've forgotten that you're safe with God. So why, aren't you, why are you hostile to them or why do you avoid it? Well, it's because you're, why aren't you being safe towards them? It's because you don't believe you're safe either. And so, if we're to correct or call out or confront sin in each other, we need to have this, this mindset. You know, it's like, I was like, oh, we could talk about, like, what are the three steps if you're going to, like, confront sin in somebody else? But it's like, well, if you're, I'm sure if you've experienced situations like me, you go to talk to somebody, like, hey, you hurt me in this way. Even if you start out perfect, they're not going to be perfect. And because they're not perfect, suddenly your reaction is going to be less than perfect. And it's just going to keep going back and forth. So it's like, you know, the three-step process doesn't really work when we're talking about how someone's hurt, hurt us because you're like, oh, gosh, that step got broken. So we need more of, it's more of a mindset thing. So our mindset needs to be this. We need to be safe people calling others to safety. We need to be safe people, all caps, um, calling others to safety. We need to be safe people calling others to safety. Because if you know that you're secure... And accepted and forgiven and embraced. Now you can call others to that place as well. You know, imagine this is kind of like, like okay, I'm in, I'm in this, I'm in the safe place with God, and now this person sinned, and maybe they don't know it yet. But as soon as you let them know it, you can, you can bet they're going to feel a little unsafe. They're going to feel like, well, you're rejecting me, you're judging me, you're condemning me, are you not loving me? And your role is like, no. I'm in this place of safety, and I want to call you back. You tell and remind you that you could, you're secure in Christ. I know I'm telling you that you're sinful. Jesus paid for that, right? Like you're accepted by God. You can be forgiven of everything. And God wants to embrace you, so we're calling people into that. We stand in this safe place um, and try to call other people into there as well. But what I'm sure most, many of you have heard the words, you know, fight or flight. And when we feel unsafe or scared, like either we're going to fight or we're going to flee. We're going to do flight. Um, and you can, you know, when we feel insecure, we feel rejected or condemned or unloved, it's like, okay, uh, flight would mean, um, like, we get small. It's like, I just want to run away and hide. 
I just don't want you to even see me. I just want to be out of this. I just want to hide. And fight is like we try to get big. We try to like, you know, an animal. Sometimes you see little cats like scaring off bears or whatever. And it's like they're doing that because they're scared. Both of these come from fear. One, flight is running away scared. Fight is I'm scared, but I'm going to get big. And I'm going to try and scare you off by getting bigger than you. Like, you know, raising hair on their back or whatever. Um, but in this we, you know, blame, um, justify, um, compare ourselves to others. Be like, oh, I'm going to make myself look bigger and better than I actually am. Whereas when we flee, we try to run and hide. You see Adam and Eve doing this. Their first initial response is when they realize they've done something wrong. First they flee. They go and hide behind in the bushes. They put fig leaves on. Uh, when God calls them out of hiding, then they're fighting. They're like blaming everybody except themselves for what they've done wrong. And we can see that, uh, them doing that. And so if you think, uh, but you, when you're seeing somebody do that, this fight or flight thing, it's like you tell somebody like, hey, you, you, you did this. I, the way you spoke to me, it was harsh. I felt sad about that. Um, it hurt. You know, immediately they're going to want to, you know, unless they're in a safe place too, you're here, and they're going to be like, I want to run and hide. Or they're going to be like, I'm just going to scare you off, and I'm going to show you how I'm actually better. And you're like, you know, if you can be safe, you're calm. Like, I'm secure. I'm accepted. I'm forgiven. I'm embraced. And I want them to experience that too, and you're calling them uh, into that. But if we think about our four Gs, uh, which, it, you know, in these situations, we'll just cover both of them at once. If you're talking about somebody about something they've done to you, or somebody is talking to you about something you've done to them, how would the believing these one of these four G's help in those situations? too. Like if you're telling somebody like I'm scared they're going to yell at me and be mad. It's like I don't need to be afraid of them. Or if somebody's telling you it's like wow they saw something I did wrong well, I still don't need to be afraid of them. Because God's glorious. God's gracious because neither party would have anything necessarily to prove if you're both in the safe zone. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Like I'm not trying to prove something by com- telling you you hurt me. And you don't need to prove anything by trying to make yourself look better. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Any others come to mind? Well, I mean, <coughs> God is good. I mean, I like what it's, what it's written under God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for my satisfaction. It means supposing, like, the conflict that you have with somebody else and uh, your effort to resolve it in a kind of like a godly way doesn't actually go well. I mm-hmm. mean, you're not, you know, that that's not guilt that you you have to bear. That's not a, a wound that you, um, that at least you have to you have to bear in, in witness of God. You know, you are, um, um, uh, you know, you are justified in, in God's eyes with your faith, and you can kind of continue mm-hmm. uh, in God's grace. Yeah, I didn't need whatever I wanted from you. You're right. Yeah. Like I didn't need something from you in this. Like I'm satisfied already. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like good 
I like to come back to good as about like, well, God wants good things for me and he wants good things for them and they can't have those good things if they're living in the selfishness because it's self-destructive, it's ugly, it's hurtful. And like, he wants better for them. And I think grace sounds like I love you and want, want, want more for you. Um, I think that is another mindset of like, if I'm talking to somebody about their sin or their selfishness, it's like, I love you and want more for you. That's why I'm talking to you about this, not because I'm proving or I need something from you, you know, or whatever it is. Any other thoughts? You can repeat one or use great. Just don't want to cut you off if somebody had a thought. I think great is helpful because you're like, I can't control how this person reacts. Um, God's in control. You know? um, or even like, I think when I see sin in someone else, I want to like control them to change. Right? Mm-hmm. Hey, I see that you're doing this thing and I want to do, I want to control you, which is why I'm going to cause it. Mm-hmm. I believe that God's the one that's actually in control and he's the one that enables any change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the same token, if someone sees sin in me, um, I don't have to think that that person uh, is doing it because I want to control me. Or even mm-hmm. if they are, I can look right. and see that God is mm-hmm. is in control of that situation and he might be pointing something out in me that I need to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes I see myself making um, is I think sometimes we make uh, like dealing with our sin a like private thing like somebody like hey I see this in you okay I'll go and pray about that no God sent that person to me to deal with it right now <laughs> Just, you know it's not like you know like okay I'll take it under consideration with God it's like no God is in that person hopefully they've submitted to the Holy Spirit and they've done this because they're like I think I'm really supposed to talk to this person help them grow in their faith and relationship with God and now that's how God is dealing with it and it's not like I'm just going to go consider it with God. It's like you're wanting to go hide in the bushes. And yeah, good point. Yeah, but it sounds more godly to say, I'll pray. You know, <laughs> I'll think about it and pray about it and get back to you about whether that was sinful or, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think of it that way. Well, I think that for us, I was thinking, I don't know, it was like a month or two ago, and Nick said something to me that made me think about, I want to explain the whole story, but what is success between me and my son Hudson, or my home. And I think it's to make it a safe place, I wasn't thinking of this word, this acronym, but a safe place to be needy and weak and sinful. Um, Not okay to be sinful, um, but a safe place to be sinful, if that, I think there's a difference there. Like telling somebody it's okay, it's like, oh, it's not a big deal, like, um, but saying it's safe here, and I'm gonna love you and help you and forgive you help you through this and so um, for us uh, the family of God should be the safest place to be sinful our goal should be to be a safe place for people to be sinful but not a safe place for people to stay sinful Um, and I think that's the difference there we're not like hey it's okay you know just come it's okay to be imperfect and it's like well it's safe to be imperfect it's safe to be sinful it's safe to be working through things uh, but we don't want you to stay that way. God loves him, and he wants to more for us. He wants better things for us. And so we're going to work together, and we know that God has sent us for those things. And 
God wants us all to live changed lives, and he's just beginning to work in Jacob's life. It takes a long time before you see Jacob really express you know, the kind of maturity that we saw in Abraham in Genesis 22. I really don't think we'd get even that sort of thing until like Genesis 49. I don't, he's like about to die. Um, but God's working in Jacob's life, and he not only frees us from the penalty of our sin, uh, but also from its power. And this is, you know, this is remembering. If you don't remember you're saved from sin's penalty, and you're secure, accepted, forgiven, and embraced, you won't live free of sin's power. You'll keep going back to it and back to it and won't go to God. Let's pray. Father, we just are uh, needing your, desperately needing your help. Uh, we see Jacob trying to live, do this thing on his own, uh, and not looking to you, at least we're not told, and we don't want to live that way. Would you help us to walk through difficulties in life and seeing other people's selfishness and people pointing out our selfishness would you let us see those as you tapping us on the shoulder and saying hey uh, this is what it looks like how you're living and um, I want you to I'd like you to change I'd like you to have more from me and and I love you want you to love me more would you help us to see your hand in our life and would you help us to live free of sin's power it's your son's name we pray amen, amen.